afternoon. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. And I want to thank you all for coming today and welcome you to our March Conservative Women's Network Lunch. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner as well, representing the Heritage Foundation. We've had a wonderful partnership for our lunches for almost 20 years now. Today I'm pleased to introduce our March CWN speaker, Ying Ma. Ying is an author, a policy expert, and communications professional. She's a member of the Board of Advisors of the Claire Booth Luce Policy Institute. She's a contributor to the Washington Examiner and the author of a wonderful book called Chinese Girl in the Ghetto, a memoir about getting to know freedom from post-Mao China to inner city Oakland, California. In the 2016 presidential election, she served as deputy director of the Committee for American Sovereignty, a super PAC formed to support the candidacy of Donald J. Trump for president of the United States. During the 2016 GOP primary, she served as deputy policy director and deputy communications director for the Ben Carson for president campaign. Previously, she was also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute of War, Revolution and Peace at Stanford University a premier conservative think tank. And from 2007 to 2012, she was a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She's written widely about politics, conservatism, China, international affairs, and her articles have been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Weekly Standard, and many other publications. She was also a columnist for the Wall Street Journal's China blog. Ying legally immigrated to the United States from communist China at the age of 10, and she went on to receive a BA at government, magna cum laude from Cornell University, where she put on a lecture with the Luce Institute as a student, and then she got a JD from Stanford Law School. Please join me in welcoming Ying Ma. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, and thank you all for being here today. Um, it is always great to work with Michelle and be a speaker for the Claire Booth Loose Policy Institute. Um, and as Michelle mentioned earlier, I had worked with the Loose Policy Institute when I was in college to put on a number of of lectures featuring conservative women, and that was a wonderful learning experience. And in, in recent years, since Michelle and I have gotten back in touch, it has always been wonderful to work with her team at the Luce Institute to get to know her students across the country, uh, people in the Luce Policies uh, Luce Policy Institute's network. And it has actually been really once again, a great learning experience for me, even now, even though now I'm out of college. And, and it's been great in this age where there are, I guess, women's marches featuring ugly pink hats and with a vulgar name. It is really quite inspiring to see the women who are affiliated with the Loose Policy Institute's network, who are poised, who are articulate, who are smart, and and you know that is certainly a lot more inspiring. And it is something that we really ought to celebrate in this age, where there are lots of questions about what a modern woman is supposed to be. It, it is also great to be back at the Heritage Institute. Thank many thanks to the Heritage Institute for letting me stand on this side of the podium again. Many years ago, I was here as an intern 
uh, for a, a department called Policy Review. It no longer exists, but I was at the time in college and I was a girl from the ghetto and, and I had never really worked at sort of a, a real nine-to-five office place with, you know, people who got dressed up in suits and who, you know, were expected to behave in a professional manner and coming here, it was eye-opening for so many reasons. Uh, and, and one of those reasons was certainly that Heritage taught me all about what it really was like to see conservative ideas in action, to see people talking about major issues of our day from Medicare reform to the budget to foreign policy issues. But it was also great to be here because everybody was always so nice to you. And that as a kid from the ghetto, I was always told that conservatives were racist, sexist, xenophobes, you know, homophobes, yada, yada, and the list goes on. And I come here and, and everybody was always so nice. And, and that has remained the case throughout the years that I've uh, been coming to Heritage lectures and, and events, and so so many thanks to Heritage for having me here. It's really an honor to, to speak to you all again. Now, the last time I was here uh, was about three years ago, and it, it seems like that was a lifetime ago, and I think maybe primarily it's because that was before Trump, and we're now living in the era of President Donald Trump, and, and everything's a little bit topsy-turvy. And, um, and, and during, I guess, during the intervening time period, there so many conservatives have criticized the president for being somebody who's hostile to conservatism, for being somebody who's really an opportunist, a charlatan, uh, a buffoon, you know, there are many other names that have been used. And, and a lot of people have actually, a lot of prominent conservatives have actually said that the president is somebody who's a disgrace to conservatism and a disgrace to the Republican Party. Now, I, I think it's always healthy to have a robust debate within conservative circles and within the conservative movement. Um, but I would argue that on a number of big issues, and, and I think what the last election taught us was that it was, in fact, a lot of people who are, who are sort of inside the Beltway conservatives or inside the Beltway Republicans who have, in fact, not really understood what it was that voters across America wanted and that a lot of people who claimed to be conservative were the ones who betrayed the principles that they claimed to stand for. And uh, a lot of people sort of started to forget what the interests of their voters really, really or their constituents really were. Now, I'm not going to go through the long list of issues uh, that are important in our day, but I think one of those core issues um, that has been very much in the news and, and that has been central to the president's platform when he ran as a candidate and is central to his policy agenda now is the immigration issue. Uh, now, that is one of the issues that I think Trump, perhaps he, obviously he's not a movement conservative, obviously he's not exactly somebody who wakes up reading Frederick Hayek, Nevertheless, I think he is somebody who, by instinct, understood something that conservative voters very much wanted, conservative grassroots very much wanted. And with that instinct, he gave us a rhetoric that a lot of us welcomed. And now we're seeing from his administration policies that many conservatives should welcome as well. Um, so, so let me sort of talk a little bit about where 
things might have kind of gone off the rails. Um, what are some of the common misperceptions that people have on the left and that many people, unfortunately, on the right also share? Now, I think one of the big problems with talking about conservatism, and, and I think this was the case long before Trump started running for president, was that if you are somebody who believe in stricter border security measures, if you are somebody who does not believe that amnesty should be granted to every, legal, every illegal immigrant who is in this country, then oftentimes you are accused of being a racist and a xenophobe. And what happens in this debate is that even, you know, and, and if you take an extra step, if you talk about the need to reduce or reform legal immigration, then you're even a bigger racist and a bigger xenophobe. And I think so many people, including many on the right, have become so wrapped up in their own rhetoric that they forgot that their first responsibility really was to the, to the American people. And fundamentally, they forgot that American citizens, we are the ones who should decide. We're the ones who get to decide who enter our land and who get to stay. And coming to the United States, it is not a right, and it certainly is not an entitlement. In many ways, it is flat out a privilege, and it is the American people who ought to decide who gets that privilege. However, what we've seen over the years is that it, the entitlement mentality essentially pervades our immigration debate. The entitlement mentality pervades a lot of other things in our country and in our society. Everybody's entitled to something. You're entitled to having people not say things that make you uncomfortable. You're entitled to safe spaces, yada, yada. But in the immigration debate, I think this mentality, it is rather insidious. And, and I think it's something that we need to sort of drill down and get to. But ultimately, this particular mentality is something that is incredibly harmful to having a robust and honest debate about what is good for our country and what is good for the American people. So some, you know, I think one major misconception that we need to wrestle with, and I think people, honest people have wrestled with this, is the distinction between legal and illegal immigrants. But there are all kinds of people who are not particularly honest when they talk about immigration. And you'll see that even when people on the right talk about this issue, plenty of people will fudge it instead of making the distinction between immigrants who are legal versus those who are here illegally. So you'll see even you know, sort of more right-wing conservative outfits. For instance, the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Most of the time, when they talk, extol the virtues of immigration, they make it a point to lump legal and illegal immigrants together as if there's no distinction whatsoever. And, and then they go around bashing people for criticizing illegal immigration. Um, I, I don't think they do this every single time, but lots of people who are amnesty proponents understand how powerful the immigration narrative in this country, that people talk about this country being a nation of immigrants um, and so on. And, and I think they, I think whether consciously or, subco or, 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 or subconsciously, I think a lot of them use a lot of them use the rhetoric that they use, and they forego the distinction between legal and illegal because they understand that by lumping the two together, it automatically makes the illegal category much more sympathetic, and it allows a lot of people to essentially forget about holding our policymakers accountable, holding illegal immigrants accountable for those who have come across the border and broken our immigration laws. Now, you will hear oftentimes from people defending 
illegal immigration, that people come to this country illegally because the legal system is completely broken. And that oftentimes people who want to come here legally have no way of doing so or that it would take them so long or it would be so expensive and so cumbersome that it would just make no sense for them to do that. Now, um, a lot of, I think, for us standing here at the Heritage Foundation, a place that has put forth so many ideas about how current government policies can be better, I think most of us have some complaints about national policies or regulations that we don't agree with. For instance, most conservatives have some serious objections to our tax system, to how much taxes we have to pay. And if you are somebody who live in New York or California, and I've lived in both states for a number of years, I had some serious reservations or actually objections to the high state tax rates that they were charging. I mean, to me, that was actually very much a broken system. I didn't run around telling people, I'm going to just stop paying my taxes because your tax system is completely broken, and hence I don't need to follow your laws. If you're somebody who's pro-life and you live in a state where abortion is available on demand, you know, do you actually go and physically restrain people or violate the law by preventing women from getting um, but you know, by um, preventing women from getting abortions via violence, um, most pro-life um, advocates choose a different route. And so I think this argument that somehow we have a broken system and hence we don't need to follow the laws, that is completely absurd. Um, and, and, and I think every time somebody raises that argument, and you'll see people do this a lot on CNN, you know, and if Fox News happened to have a liberal punching bag, the liberal punching bag would almost always raise this objection. And it is completely absurd. They should not be allowed to get away with it. This country has a legal immigration process in place. Numerous individuals from around the world follow it out of respect for our rule of law. And they make huge sacrifices following because this system certainly is not perfect. Um, it is oftentimes very convoluted. And, and to some people in the third world, it's also incredibly expensive. And so you've got people making all these sacrifices, incurring heavy financial costs, jumping through bureaucratic hurdles, and they wait in line. That actually is a key concept. <laughs> they wait in line. And so if you just decide that we should offer amnesty for those who have violated US immigration laws, that not only rewards bad behavior, it also dishonors and dismisses the sacrifice of illegal immigrants. And what is even more galling is that you see a lot, at least certainly during the Obama era, very much during the Bush era, I think less so today, um, when illegal immigrants in, in America, and, and, and I'm not here to, to malign the character of illegal immigrants, but I, I think there's a difference between wanting to come here and, and then coming here illegally, whether it's for, for financial reasons or whether you're trying to escape you know, it, um, escape, escape just heinous crime in your home, home country, whatever the reasons are. P lots of people want to come here. I'm not trying to malign their character, but it is a very different thing when you come here, you're illegal, and you are, in fact, standing outside of some congressional office flaunting your illegal status. Um, and then what happens is that these so-called, I mean, these folks call themselves immigration rights activists. They give interviews to the New York Times. They give interviews to the Washington Post. And they testify before Congress. And, and then, you know, next thing you know, they're all at a rally somewhere. Um, and I think it was Laura Ingram who once said, what is this business about, you know, trying to, 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 to bring illegal immigrants out of the shadows? Last time she checked, they were all at some kind of a rally. They're not, they don't seem to be, they don't seem to be in the shadows at all. Um, and 
and and I think you know, and obviously not, you know, not every illegal immigrant is at a rally, but but I think you get the point, and that is that there are often, and what we see is that there is often no consequence or no legal consequence, it seems, for people to flaunt their illegal status. And that is really a slap in the face to those of us who believe in the rule of law. And, and, and I think we should not condone and certainly should not enc encourage that kind of behavior. Um, and I, and I, I think, once again, I go back to the entitlement mentality. Nobody is entitled to come here and be a citizen here. Nobody's entitled to come here and work here. And if you came here illegally, and if Americans are compassionate enough to grant you legal status or to grant you a pathway to citizenship, and we can, I'll get to that a little bit more in a bit, that's one thing. But it is very different for you to sort of slap us in the face and say, you know, I'm here illegally and you just need to put up with it and I'm, you know, I have the right to stay. No, you do not. There's no such thing. Now, um, Michelle had asked me to, to talk a little bit about my story. So I guess one of the reasons I'm so worked up about this is that my family actually went through a pretty cumbersome legal immigration process. And you guys have heard all about all the fireworks coming out of Oakland recently where the mayor of Oakland decided that she was going to actively obstruct um, the federal government from enforcing immigration laws. And now I just happened to, to be someone who showed up in Oakland as a legal immigrant when I was a kid. My family applied to immigrate to the United States for, uh, when we were living in communist China. And this was soon after China had just opened up to the world. It was, you know, we started applying not, not that long after um, Chairman Mao had died and, and the country was still incredibly poor. And everybody wanted to leave. And, and, and once the country opened up, you know, we found this avenue to apply to, the, to come to the United States. And after four years of waiting, four years of waiting in line, we got to the front of the line. And then one thing that was quite shocking to us was that the US consulate in the city we lived in told us, well, OK, you got to the front of the line, but we still want additional proof of documentation from you. And essentially what they wanted was they wanted documentation of my mother's country of birth. And she had been born in, born in Indonesia, and it was kind of the chaos of the third world. Not everybody who are born in the third, who's born in the third world actually has a birth certificate, and I don't think she did. But when we applied to, when we began our immigration application process, we disclosed where my mother was born, provided whatever documentation that she did have as a citizen of China at the time. And, and the US consulate said, OK, wait in line. And so we waited in line for about four years. And then once we got to the front of the line, and we were actually very much ready to come to the US, thinking that, OK, this is when our application will be approved. But the consulate said, no, 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 no. Um, there was an oversight. <laughs> and we're going to need your birth certificate. And if you don't have it, you're going to need to go get us all these other things, affidavits and and yeah, and 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 sort of sworn testimony from, and, and I mean, you know, from people you used to know or family members you still have in Indonesia. And um, now, my mom grew up in this really dust, or was born in this really dusty little town in Indonesia. I don't think anybody she knew had ever heard of an affidavit, and she didn't know anybody there anymore anyway. And she didn't have any more family members um, because one of the reasons she left Indonesia was because the government started or was threatening to start killing Chinese people. And, and in fact, some years not too long after my mother left, they had a massive um, um, 
problem where they essentially massacred a number of their Chinese citizens. So long story short, we didn't quite have the documentation that the US consulate asked us for. But we went and did our best to go and try to find it. And I remember that every time we incur we, we ran into some kind of a hurdle because there were lots of hurdles. Um, I would come home and I would see my mom sitting in the living room crying because she thought that we were now one step further removed from our dream of coming to the United States. And so that went on and on and on, nine months. You know, nine months from the day when we got to the front of the line and thought we were gonna be able to be approved to come to the US, nine months. And then finally, the consulate relented and came up with an alternative <laughs> arrangement. And, and I won't bore you with the details, but ultimately we did satisfy all the requirements that the consulate had um, had spelled out for us and then, you know, and then so approximately, I think five years or so after we submitted our application, we um, got on a plane and well, we had to go through, um, uh, go through a certain exit port. But, but essentially after all that waiting and the maneuvering, we got on a plane and came to the United States. Now, and I, I don't actually think our story really shows how cumbersome the process is because there are many more people who wait a lot longer. There are a lot of aspiring immigrants to this country who wait decades. And, and so we were actually quite lucky. And I know that, you know, we were fortunate in many ways that the paperwork, even with all the, you know, with all the hassles, it actually went through and, and, and you know, and we were able to come here illegally. But, um, but I, I, I mean, I, I tell my story to, to sort of demonstrate that there is a big difference between people who follow the rules, even when they know or, or are quite sure, 99% sure, that whatever the rules are imposing on them are probably impossible. And there are a lot of people who continue to follow those rules because they're America's rules. And when they want to come to America, they believe in actually following the country they want to adopt as a home. There's a big difference between that and walking across the border or overstaying your visa. And I think we need to, to be, and, and, and it doesn't mean that the people in the latter category are bad people, but I think it, it behooves us to make a distinction between those in the former category and in the latter category, and to make that distinction between legal and illegal. And, and so amnesty proponents are always talking about compassion for illegal immigrants. Well, what about some compassionate, and, and in fact, some respect for those who do things the legal way. And I think, you know, I, I think we should insist on, on according that respect to aspiring legal immigrants as well as legal immigrants who have arrived in the United States. Now, another common thing I hear a lot about in this debate is, you know, and, and on this very crucial issue about amnesty for the dreamers. Um, and, and they are, placed in a category different from their parents, different from adults who showed up here as tourists and overstayed their visa. Um, they are placed in this almost a sacred category. And, and what people, what advocates for them often say is that these are people who were brought here as children through no fault of their own. Now, I've always found that characterization a bit jarring. And, and I think it, um, you know, it doesn't diminish the achievement of a lot of these kids who have come here and have worked hard and have excelled in school and excelled in their professional lives. 
But I, I think for anybody who's intimately familiar with the immigration experience, children are never, ever just innocent bystanders in an illegal act. It never happens that way. They are often the primary reasons for you to seek entry into another country. It, they are often the primary reasons inspiring a family to make the sacrifices, to work at some minimum wage jobs, um, and, and to do a lot of things that perhaps more comfortable citizens of this country would not do. And it is because the parents, the families, want to make those sacrifices to ensure a brighter future for the children. And so I, I think we need to be honest about that. It is often a very admirable lab, what parents are willing to do to sacrifice for their children. But let's not pretend that the children are sort of just there. They're just hanging out. They're just coming along. And they get on this journey. And, oh yes, through no fault of their own, and, and um, a very conservative um, um, uh, policy expert on the immigration issue has written that, it, it, you know, children are always kind of assumed to be doing things through no fault of their own, right? So if the parents don't pay their mortgage and your house gets foreclosed on, it's no fault of the children. Do they get to stay in the house? No, of course not. And, and I found his analogy very actually very apt. Um, and, you know, and, and, and I think he had a bigger, I think he was much more sympathetic to the idea um, that this is, these are children who have known no other country. But I'm not even sympathetic to that because, again, I, I would go back to the analogy he used. You know, okay, if your parents don't pay the mortgage and the house you live in is the only house you've ever known, you still don't get to stay in that house. Um, so, okay, you've known no other house but you're not entitled to stay in a house that your parents aren't paying for. And I, I think, um, and, and that sounds a bit harsh, and I think Americans are kind people who do want to come up with some kind of solution, especially for Im illegal immigrants who arrived here at a very young age, and especially if they are people who have no, no other home. But, but I, I think we ought to be much more realistic and much more honest with ourselves once again, that there are often realities in life that make things tough for children. And so the immigration issue is not that different. And, and so if we're going to talk about compassion, let's certainly focus on compassion first for American citizens and compassion for those who came here legally. Now, by give, you know, and, and, and I, but I, I think in this debate that we're having about what to do about the dreamers, the first thing we should not do is to rush to give them amnesty, and that was what you know pr uh, President Obama gave them provisional legal status, and he sort of just did it by executive fiat. Um, I think when we do that, we are strengthening, not weakening, the incentives for illegal immigration. Um, and one more thing, if you ask the children whether they wanted to come to America, like if somebody had asked them while they were in their own home country and whether they wanted to come here illegally, I don't, I'm not so sure that they would have all said no. And so let, let's stop it with this business about how the children come here through no fault of their own. As far as I know, most children in developing countries, in third world countries, and, and those are the children we're supposed to be most compassionate about, most of them want to come here. Most of them want to go to the West, you know. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm a big believer in America first, but lots of children want to go to Australia. They want to go to, you know, Germany and, and, and elsewhere. So, you know, so <laughs> I'm going to give our, our democratic allies some, some credit here. But, 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 but coming back to my, my, my point, I, I think most children, if you ask them, 
and if they're living in a developing country somewhere, a war-torn country or a very desperate third world country, and you ask them if you get to go to the United States, and, and if it, even if it's illegal, would you go? And they probably would say yes. Now, I'm not going to hold them to that because they, they're kids and they don't know what they're talking about, but, um, but if we're going to make such a big deal about how they didn't make the decision to come here, I, I just think that, well, let, let's actually, you know, let's actually dissect this a little bit more. And I think that if we're going to give these DACA recipients or dreamers legal status or, or, or citizenship, I mean, I think this argument just does not fly. And I, I think there, there would be other reasons for sure. And, 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 um, and I think we need to, once again, think a lot more honestly about this whole debate. Um, I think the president needs to be a, a little bit more realistic about this too, because you know, you'll notice that the president has a soft spot for these kids, um, many of whom really are kids anymore. And you know, the president likes to call them kids. And in fact, his White House offered up a very generous kind of path to citizenship, not just for the 700,000 or so recipients who are beneficiaries who signed up for Obama's DACA program um, and work permits, but his White House was willing to add on, you know, to add on those benefits for others who didn't sign up. And then the number would have, the number they proposed was about 1.8 million. Um, and, 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 it was, and, and as many of you know, it was quite jarring to a lot of conservatives who, and, and very tough um, on the border type of folks who supported the president. Um, and, and uh, you know, one question I, I had when this all came up was why must, um, you know, why must these illegal immigrants who came here at a young age get citizenship? Can't we at least just, can't we just start with legal status, provisional legal status, and and if they don't get citizenship, is that really such a bad thing? Um, you know, they did come here illegally. If they are given legal status, that is already a reprieve. That is already an act of compassion from the American people and from American policymakers. Um, and, you know, and I think that's something we need to have a debate about. I, I think a lot of us who believe in you know, funding for the wall, who believe in making a lot of other, um, a lot of other uh, reforms on legal and illegal immigration. I think plenty of people are willing to sort of maybe give a little on this issue. Not everybody, but I think many, many are willing to entertain the idea. But, um, you know, but thank goodness for the Democrats, they didn't really want to, they didn't really want to take this deal. So, <laughs> so we don't have a deal. Um, but, but let me come back to, to the, to the idea or the, the concept of entitlement. Because if you listen to the, some of the most outspoken dreamers who are on TV or talking to the press about why they should get to stay here, they are people who sound more entitled than anybody else in this debate. And in fact, I have a lot more sympathy for the illegal immigrant who is working in the shadows, working two or three jobs, you know, um, Trying to take care of her kids uh, and, and trying to, to 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 make her rent payments and living in maybe a, just a, a hole in the wall and and she's cleaning houses you know and her husband's you know mowing lawns whatever and I have a lot more sympathy for people like that in fact because they're not in my face telling me that I need to give them legal status or citizenship. Um, however, what you will find is that these dreamers, they are oftentimes the people who sound more entitled than anybody else. They are the ones who will 
you know, kind of shove their face in front of you or at least certainly put their face on camera or tell the New York Times that they went to school here, that they did so well they got scholarships, um, and that they deserve to stay because they have dreams too. And, you know, and, and I think there, there are certain people, I think, who perhaps have a little bit more of a right to say that. If you are a dreamer and you signed up for the military and you are willing to fight and die for this country, that is a little bit different. However, if you're just going to school here um, and you're getting a free education, especially if you're getting a scholarship that could have potentially gone to a US citizen or a permanent legal resident, um, all of those things are privileges you enjoy from this country. You are not entitled to it. And having gotten those privileges, you're not entitled to stay here just because you have gotten those privileges. Um, and, and perhaps Americans feel, might feel, would feel that ultimately it is in our po public policy interest to grant that privilege to these streamers. But it is not in their right to demanded in such an entitled way. It is, in fact, all really jarring, and it's kind of, there's something awfully offensive about it. Um, so, um, you know, so that, the, that's the dreamers. Um, many of them are very impressive, but we've got lots, there are lots and lots of impressive people across the world. We can't possibly take every single one of them. Um, so, you know, let's be a little bit more honest about that as well. Now, let me move on to another topic that, um, um, gets talked a lot about, and it actually has gotten um, a lot more attention than the Trump era, and that is chain migration. Now, in recent days, we have been told that even using this term is racist. And I hear it a lot from people on the left. I haven't quite heard any of the pro-amnesty types on the right tell you know, tell the American public that the term, they think the term is racist, they, you know, at least I haven't heard it. I'm, I, I'm not sure if, if that is totally accurate, but I hear it a lot from the left that it, even using this term is racist. Um, so let me share my story on this front as well. So I am very much a product of chain migration. And it is something that President Donald Trump certainly does not like. His White House doesn't like it. Plenty of members of Congress do not like it. Jeff Sessions doesn't like it. And I don't think he liked it even when he was a senator. And I think it's something that those of us who came to this country via chain migration need to actually also have a much more honest discussion about. And so those of us who came here on, on chain migration, um, you know, I, I, I think many are grateful for, the, for that opportunity. Many are grateful that we got to reunify with our families and we have found opportunities here that only America can grant. Um, in my case, when I came to the, the US on the basis of, um, uh, of family reunification, my family left China because we wanted a better life, one that China simply couldn't grant us. And so, of course, there was a lot of hardship. There was hard work, and, and there's no doubt about that. And, you know, and as I've said, you know, in previous lectures for the Luce Institute, that as an immigrant who come here without financial resources and English skills, you will oftentimes have to go a step further, two steps further, ten steps further, further to get, you know, some of the same privileges that other people enjoy. Um, and that's just life. Um, you know, I, I, 
um, you know, I'd give an example of my grandmother. She was in her 60s, and she didn't really speak English. And I remember the job that she had was she rode, she took the bus um, uh, for over an hour. This was one of her jobs um, before she retired. She took, she often took the bus for over an hour um, to an unfamiliar neighborhood um, or to an unfamiliar nearby city to serve as a babysitter for a middle-class family, you know, that was happy to have her, even though she didn't speak English very well because they liked how, you know, what she was doing with the kids, um, their kid. And, and um, you know, and I certainly uh, wish that my grandmother didn't have to do that in her 60s, and she had no idea where she was half the time. You know, the bus kind of just took her through these places. Um, but here's what happened um, as she got older, she, what, once all her papers were in order, she went on Medicaid. In California, it's called Medi-Cal. Um, but it is a program, that a federal government program, um, that assists poor people. And, you know, and, and, and in her case, she was over 65, and, and she was also low income. Um, I assure you that none of the none of the income she received being a babysitter, and she had a few other positions too, I assure you that none of that um, money that went into federal coffers for your taxes or whatever could have covered what Medicaid covered for my grandmother. Um, you know, there's my parents. They, their first task upon arriving in this country was to go look for a job. I was still groggy from jet lag from China. Um, I think it was our second day in this country, they went out there and looked for a job. And they essentially worked their entire adult lives here after arriving. They didn't care if the jobs were sub-minimum wage. Um, they didn't care if at times they had to wear two jobs. But they worked. And in fact, one of the things that bothered them the most was that they would see friends and relatives who come to this country uh, never having worked a day and then just get welfare benefits or government subsidies of one kind or another. Sometimes it's because they are over 65, and sometimes it's because they're adults who, in fact, are able-bodied but who are poor. Um, and, and I think that was always very jarring for my parents because they kept working the whole time they were able to do so. Now, even with all their hard work, when they retired or when they you know, became of a certain age, they became eligible for Social Security and Medicare. And I would say that even though they had paid, certainly paid a lot more taxes than my grandmother did, whatever taxes they paid into the system simply cannot offset the money that the government will spend on them legally. And that is money they are entitled to as uh, under current law as citizens of this country. But you do the math, and there's no way you can be honest with yourself and say, oh, they you know, somehow paid more in taxes than they are getting back. Um, and in every immigrant community that comes here on chain migration, you find lots and lots of stories like that. And, and there are lots of good people, lots of hardworking people. But there are also lots of old people who come here. There are lots of people who don't have high school degrees, who don't have college degrees. And even if they are hardworking, oftentimes what they put in the government coffers will be less than what the government will pay out to them. Now, Americans will need to decide if that's really how we want to view our immigration system. We may actually choose to, do, to, to see this a little bit differently, right? We may say that, you know, this 
dynamism that immigrants bring with us. The creativity, the ingenuity, the can-do spirit, that is worth enough to us that even if chain migration comes with a cost, we are willing to put up with it. We are willing to, to, you know, to find ways to continue with this policy. But I don't think most Americans understand what the cost is. And you know, obviously, Heritage has done some wonderful and, and um, you know, very informative studies on this issue. But um, let me cite a study by the National Academy, Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Um, in 2016, they reported that on average, a non-elderly adult immigrant without a high school degree will cost US taxpayers $231,000. And that already takes into account what they've paid in to the system. So one person, $231,000. Um, so I, I think, once again, this is a debate we need to have instead of calling. And, and you know, the president talks in a very unconventional way, as we all know. And so he is the last person who will give you figures like that. But that's what his staff is there for. That's what people in the different agencies are for. And, and I think that in this debate about whether we should reduce chain migration or do away with it altogether, that's obviously, you know, what the White House preference is. Um, it is completely counterproductive to say that it is just racist. And a lot of people come to me and say, you know, you're a legal immigrant and you have no business um, supporting um, restrictive measures on legal immigration. And I, I think that legal immigrants who are honest with themselves um, need to really sort of speak up. And, 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 and I, I think that, that one of the more honest answers is that there is a certain amount of virtue in bringing people here who have nothing to lose. They are willing to take risks, and I think there are studies that say that immig immigrants tend to be a lot more entrepreneurial. They start, you know, they tend to start their own businesses on a high, at a higher rate than 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 citizens who are born here. Um, I, I think those are things we ought to be a lot more honest about. Are those intangible benefits, or perhaps even tangible benefits, are those enough to kind of outweigh the very significant and very real? monetary and financial costs that, that our immigration system is imposing on us. And, and so having a conversation about, you know, or, or just letting people call us racist over the use of this term is completely absurd, once again. Um, so I think, um, I, I, I think what we have learned in the last couple of years is that people can get pretty crazy when they, and, 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 and they, will say all kinds of crazy things that you never thought they were capable of. Um, and, and that happens a lot in the immigration debate. Um, it was pretty crazy even before a few years ago, but it certainly has gotten a lot crazier now. But I think what the last couple of years have taught us is that is that it helps to look at this issue, not just through a prism where people don't just get an entitlement to come to this country. But I think that, you know, but, but as in line with that and as part of that, I, I think we need to look at this through the prism of sovereignty. And, and what that means is that as a democratic country, we get to decide through our elected representatives what our immigration policies should be. Um, on the campaign trail, Trump used to talk incessantly about sovereignty, but he ne never mentioned it by name. That, you know, it's one of the many intriguing um, and fascinating things about Donald Trump. Um, he used to say on the campaign trail all the time, we either have a country or we don't. And 
those people who took him seriously understood that he was referring to uncontrollable illegal immigration from the southern border um, to, and he was referring to illegal immigrants who believed that they were entitled to somehow remain in the U.S., even if our laws say otherwise. And he was referring to politicians in, in both parties who cower before identity politics rather than offer viable solutions. Just look at the mayor of Oakland. Um, and and I, I think that in very unmistakable terms, Trump was defending Americans, America's sovereign right to control its own borders, to choose who enter its land. Um, and, and so as a result of that, the White House has come up with reform priorities such as building a wall, defunding sanctuary cities, reducing the population of unaccompanied illegal minors, punishing people for visa overstays, restructuring legal immigration and, and other border security measures. And, and, okay, and, and guess this, I'm a big fan of Jeff, Jeff Sessions suing the sanctuary state of California just recently. Um, that is fantastic news. So, but, but I think ultimately we come back to this idea and it really, you know, it really is about an idea that the American people ought to get to choose. We get to decide and there's nothing unconservative about that. Um, now, conservatives, this is a very, the immigration issue is a very complicated issue, and conservatives don't do anybody a service when they cower before leftist rhetoric. Um, I, I think that for those of us who have been conservatives for a long time, many of us were conservatives before Trump, and we will be conservatives after pres the president leaves office, I think it is important for us to ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? What did we not get? What were big picture items that we failed to see that he actually saw and that he was able to get? And what can we do better? Um, and how is it that we can actually serve the people that we claim we represent? Um, you know, there are elected politicians who serve actual voters in their district. But I think for people, you know, but the others, whether you're a nonprofit or whether you're a scholar or a policymaker, a lot of us over the years have been trying to tell or have tried, been trying to tell ourselves that we actually serve as a bridge. Our policy ideas, our advocacy, those are supposed to serve as a bridge between you know, the policymakers and, and the government and those voters who don't spend time reading the Weekly Standard, reading the National Review or reading one of the many great policy backgrounders put out by the Heritage Foundation. And I think we have always maintained that we too serve the American people. And, and I think it, it is useful during these very nasty debates to actually ask ourselves, are we, have we in fact been doing that? Um, and, and if we are accusing all kinds of well-intentioned American people who maybe don't speak in pitch perfect ways because they didn't go to Ivy League law schools or, or they didn't you know, grow up in some kind of sophisticated neighborhood. Um, if we are all too willing to malign them just because they want to protect their families, protect their country and protect their borders, then I think there is something very wrong even with people like us. And I think that it is up to conservatives to in fact restore conservatism and to put it in the language that maybe is a little bit less colorful than the kind of language that the president uses, but I think his cover, colorful language has reminded us actually that, um, that there is a lot of truth in a lot of things that we have missed um, and, and, that, and that a little bit of humility um, is often a very good thing. And, and as I said in my talk, a lot, of, a lot more honesty would be a very good thing. So, um, so I would just end by saying that ultimately citizenship 
and legal status in this country is something that needs to be earned. Um, it should not be doled out like a government subsidy. And it is because it is far too precious. And we should never forget that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm happy to take any questions. I know um, heritage folks are walking around with a mic. If you could wait for the microphone, oh, the please. Mic? <laughs> but we are also recording it and, and okay. live streaming it. Susie Miller, were you considered a refugee when you came I over? I was not, no. Okay, thank not. you. Um, so the family reunification category that we, um, that, that we applied for was um, sort of sibling to sibling. And, and so my father applied to, to reunify with one of his siblings who was already living here in the US. So we were just plain old legal immigrants, um, not, not refugees. Yes. Let's see. One of the things that I, I've noticed in the overall picture, the immigrants that come here, um, some of them are being brought in because of political means. In other words, they need your vote. Mm -hmm. And they know you don't understand the, what's going on in this country, and they don't do that. But they bring you here to, to take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. Then they leave you here. <laughs> and let you fend for yourselves and getting on, on amenities, which they, some people in their countries have computer programs of telling them what to do to come here and get on this program and that program. They even help them. Um, getting the money out of the, the politics, in other words, that's helping to corrupt a lot of this and a corrupt uh, immigration program. Um, is something that needs to be looked at and talked about openly. The forgotten man in this country is what brought Donald Trump into office. And that was brought in because of the outsourcing and people putting out of their jobs, that American citizens put out of their jobs, and I was one of them. So um, I'm, not, I'm all for immigration, but we need to follow the needs of this country and what our country needs and bring in the people that can help us and want to help us and want to become U.S. citizens and want to work along those lines. Other than that, the M13s and the criminal elements that are coming in here because of the big money criminal elements mm -hmm. and the businesses that are doing that, the drug culture, to help those people uh, keep supplying the underground economy, what have you. Mm -hmm. All of this needs to be looked at, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't get to this earlier, but it is no secret that a lot of people on the left are advocating for mass amnesty because they believe that it'll bring them future voters, that they believe that first these people, the, the, the illegals who become legal under their, um, their policy, uh, under their policies would, for, you know, would decide to vote Democrat in the future or vote for liberal policies in the future precisely because they're going to get um, citizenship, or once they get citizenship, they'll remember that. But, but I think once, once illegal immigrants get citizenship, people on the left have already made it clear that, you know, they're going to get all kinds of government goodies. And, and that's what people on the left are promising to, to sort of American citizens in general, too, that, you know, that we will spend 
other people's money on you. You just vote for us. And so I, I think that is that is a very, a very cynical ploy, and, and, and that is what makes this more of a problem, that instead of viewing citizenship as a precious commodity, that it's just really kind of a tool that people are using to, to protect and enhance their political power, and, and, and it's quite disgusting. Um, you mentioned assimilation. I, I think, you know, and, and I was talking about legal immigration earlier, about sort of talking more, more honestly about the cost and benefit of legal uh, immigration. Now, those who want more restrictions on legal immigration have every reason to look at how legal immigrants these days are not being assimilated nearly as well as they were um, you know, in previous decades or previous centuries. And, and so if legal immigrants are coming here and they're not really assimilating and they're not, you know, you go to all kinds of cities and towns in, in Southern California and you wonder, am I really still in America? Um, and, and, and I think there are numerous aspects to assimilation. However, if that's not taking place, in kind of a very productive or effective way. It also calls into question what sort of benefits legal immigration is really having um, for this country. And I, I, so I think all of those do need to be looked at much more carefully, for sure. Yes. Hi, my name is Alex. I, so we talked about being real, realistic about this whole situation. So I believe right now the number is like 11 million undocumented right, uh, immigrants. Right. So what would That's kind of the right? So what would you say legislatively or executively is the solution for your, for these illegal immigrants? Oh, well, I mean, I think a lot of people are willing to. You know, I think I think those who want tighter border security, those who kind of share my views, I think many of us have said that because Americans are compassionate people, we're not advocating rounding up all 11 million people and deporting them. That wouldn't make any sense. But I, I think that that our compassion shouldn't just be taken for granted and it shouldn't be doled out without conditions. And so I think a lot of the the reform measures that the White House has proposed, in fact, and, and a number of um, things that have been proposed by Republicans on the Hill. Um, I, I think in exchange for those measures, and I, I think it's it's um, perfectly reasonable to consider granting legal status actually, you know, um, um, out out of the shadows legal status. And and some of those measures I, I've already mentioned before. Um, you know, for instance, um, punishing doing more to punish visa overstays, restructuring the legal immigration system, and so. As part of that, the president wants to reduce or, or, or kind of do away with chain migration. His administration also wants to do away with the visa lottery system. Um, and, um, and then, you know, Senator Tom Cotton, for instance, um, um, proposed a bill last year, and, and it was actually, you know, a very good bill. And, and he talked about he, he talked about some of the things that the president now supports, but he also talked about, you know, a program where instead of giving Instead of judging immigrants um, the way that we do, aspiring immigrants the way we do now, that we kind of put them on on a point system. You know, if you're younger, you get more points. If you have a college degree or a PhD, you get more points. And then, and then the more points you have, the more um, attractive you are to us as an immigrant. And I think that's actually a very viable um, um, 
solution. But there are a lot of uh, there are. But, but I, I think the, the the key, however, is that border security is key to a lot of people. That if you're not able to stem illegal immigration um, now and in the future, then 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 I think to a lot of conservatives it seems completely absurd to simply give legal status or amnesty for those who are already here. You know, we the official number we have is approximately 11 million, but. I, you know, I suspect, the, I, I believe the number is actually a lot higher than that. Yes, lady up here. Thank you. I'm uh, Peggy Orchowski. I'm a congressional reporter for the Hispanic Outlook, and I've written two books on immigration. I really covered a lot. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, H. So the, the biggest scam to me about the DACA is that the, the whole thing has been built on, and dreamers too, on this very false definition that a DACA is someone who was brought in at a very early age illegally by their parents. Mm -hmm. with, and this is the only country they've ever known. And of course, none, not one of those words appear in either the DACA order or in the DREAM Act. The defining definition of a dreamer or a DACA, I don't know if you went into this, I hope you, but I think it's really important. There's 10 words, came in the United States before the age mm -hmm. of 16. That's the definition. That's quite a different image than having been brought in illegally by your parents. Like at as four a or five or something, so which is very different. let's right. talk about the age. And I think we do this with, with um, I think if it really, DACA really covered the little ones who mm -hmm. were brought in, who people who are, they're all millennials. Now, of course, they're adults. Mm -hmm. They have to have graduated from high school. So none of these are kids. We're talking about adults. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that definition includes people who came in legally. So you could come in on a temp visa um, up till the age of 30, which means you could also have um, overstayed your visa. And more and more illegal immigrants are not people who came in illegally, but who overstayed their visa. That is a decision of an adult that I came in on a temporary visa, tourist or whatever, I'm gonna stay illegally, and then I'm gonna apply for DACA. So I think if it was just that definition of a little child, right. or someone who was brought in, the, I think that would go, I think everybody would go on that. But what about the age of 16? And, and of course, Durbin wants to make it 18, 18 right, without correct. any upper limit. That's so where you start Lindsay, getting the I guess four Lindsay million. Graham is, they keep <laughs> is expanding his it on that, and expanding so let's not forget him. Expanding <laughs> So the DACA's are 700,000, the Dreamers are 1.8, Durbin wants to make it about 4 million. They keep increasing this. Mm -hmm. What if you did just say, you have to have come in before the age of puberty, say? And, and same with refugees. I mean, there are many children, as you know, who come in as refugees, yeah. 15, 16, 17. They're bringing in their own children. They, there is nothing about their lives that is a dependent child. Many, many of mm -hmm. the so-called minors who are brought in, unaccompanied minors, are in every way adults, except, you know, in fact, in most cultures, they recognize adults right, after 14. Right. Have you ever seen anything about changing the idea of the age of, of minors or of DACA? So I, it's, you know, I'm glad you brought this up, and, and I'm glad you brought up the Graham-Durbin bill, because they actually want to increase the age to 18. And, and that is, you know, so you, if you're, sitting there thinking, okay, you know, kids who came to this country very young through no fault of their own, and if they showed up at age 17, yeah, I would agree, or, or even at age 16, I would agree that I don't know if I consider them 
really kids who, you know, because by then, you know, they're not just, you know, they're not just hanging on to the sleeves of their parents and walking across the border. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. Um, I'm not really familiar. I know that there are, um, there are plenty of policy experts and advocates on the conservative side who have raised objections, particularly to the Graham-Durbin plan. Um, but I, I'm, I think may, I, I'm not quite sure how much effort is being made to, to sort of zero in on this age factor. Um, so, so I, I, but I do think that if if people aren't looking at it, they really should. So you know, instead of 16 or 18. What if we changed it to 10, right? You know, it, and it would seem a lot more reasonable to most reasonable Americans. But, but like you said, the way it's sold to Americans is that, oh, these are just precious little kids. But, but the bill or the law, the regulation, the current, the way that the proposed legislation in Congress, um, many of them don't actually say that. And I think the, the current DACA program doesn't work that way either. So, so I, I think, you know, I, I agree that we need to actually pay a lot more attention to that and point that out whenever we can. Yes. Okay, last question. Oh. Thank you. Great talk. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to, uh, a lot of the things that, that have been discussed are things that require congressional action mm -hmm. or presidential action mm -hmm. uh, or money, lots of money. Um, and I think one of the things that we can do that doesn't cost any of us anything is simply to begin clarifying our terms mm -hmm. because we've really, uh, we've ceded a lot of ground to uh, the quote unquote immigration rights mm -hmm. advocates when we allow them to do things like you uh, have mentioned, lumping everyone into an immigrant category, mm -hmm. whether, in whether they are in fact an immigrant uh, with rights and responsibilities who have come here uh, in, in a, it's organized fashion, uh, like my husband, who is a permanent legal resident here, uh, versus uh, illegal aliens. And I think we need to begin holding their feet to the fire and saying, well, I'm happy to discuss immigration with you, but what do you mean by the term immigrants? Because if somebody says to my husband, oh, well, you're an immigrant, don't you support DACA? And he's like, I... I'm, I'm an immigrant, mm -hmm. you're right, I'm not an illegal alien. Right. And, and I, I think we've, we've really given, uh, we, we've given a lot of ground there and it doesn't, it doesn't take anything, uh, no special effort for us simply to, to kind of pull back the curtain on some of the, the rhetorical fidgets that you get from the other side. Right, yeah, I absolutely agree and I, I think we seed ground not just on this issue, but we regularly seed ground on, on other issues too, whether it's on, you know, how we talk about radical Islamic terrorists um, who intend to to do us harm, or, I mean, there's a, or, or if you're going to sort of talk about affirmative action policies, or, you know, there are lots of, so many things out there where we have seeded ground on the rhetorical front, and, and this issue in particular, and, and I absolutely agree with you, that there are so many things where, we have sort of just, many of us have kind of given up because if we speak out, um, we're automatically labeled racist or xenophobes and nobody wants to be labeled a, a xenophobe or, or a racist. And, and so it's, it is very difficult, I think, sometimes to pipe up. And for those of us who live in places like DC or, or in other liberal cities like New York or, or San Francisco, it's even harder because, you know, once you open your mouth, um, my gosh, you lose like 90% of your friends. <laughs> so, um, 
Um, I, I, and I think perhaps that's why it helps to have a network of people who tell you you're not crazy when you actually speak up. So I am, as usual, grateful to CWN, grateful to the Luce Institute, grateful to the Heritage Foundation for offering us a place like this, um, a platform like this, but it's also to Heritage for offering all the wonderful studies that it does that, that sort of tells us in terms of numbers and, and in terms of sort of stats and all kinds of other things that we really aren't crazy when we talk about trying to defend America's borders or, or, or you know, or public interest. So thank you all for, for coming in. Thank you. We have some little gifts here. Okay. What, a, what an excellent talk. We, we want to get you out on campus if, <laughs> if they don't shout you down before you get started. We just want to give you our coffee Thank mug you. with the famous saying, you know this one well. Yes, absolutely. No good deed goes unpunished. There you <laughs> go. And of course, our Claire with loose toast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And because it's still winter outside, the Heritage Foundation has ah, a scarf for oh you God. to keep you warm. Oh my gosh, I so with love our this. Heritage Bells. Oh, with the Heritage logo. Yeah, I love so it. thank you so much. And um, I just want to bring to your attention two flyers that we have outside. One is for an upcoming event here at Heritage on the 15th. So next Thursday, Women's History Month is March, and we are hosting uh, Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers and Congresswoman Mia Love for a program on empowering women through conservative policy, so it's next Thursday at 2 p.m. So we hope you can join us for that. And Claire Booth Luce is announcing their Florida Women's Summit uh, in April 6th through 7th. So be sure to check out their website mm -hmm. if you're online or pick up the flyer outside. And we'll have lunch out in the lobby, and we hope you can stay and continue the conversation. Um, but thank you so much, Ying, thank for a, a terrific lecture today. Thank you.